So unusually for us at the Uncover Up, I am going to tell a story that is based just on one source. Now, we don't normally like to do this. We like to use as many sources as possible to corroborate the sources that we're looking at. But everything that I'm talking about comes from a book called The First Conspiracy, written by Brad Metzler and Josh Mensch. Now, as far as I can tell, this is a well-researched, well-documented, historically reliable book. But I just wanted to flag that it is the only source we have. This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hello, everyone, and hi, Nathan. It is a weird time. There's no denying it. Like, especially in the political realm, does it feel like things are kind of spiraling out of control? Yeah, it certainly does. On, on like, a global level, there seems to be this sort of anti-democratic movement. Yeah. Where we're getting all of these kind of strong men who are flirting with dictatorships. Yeah. Uh, we've seen increasingly people are becoming more suspicious of democracy. Yeah. Suspicious that democracy even works. Yeah. Which I think is kind of a reasonable suspicion. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of shenanigans. Yeah. But it's also very dangerous because the thing is, I mean, lots of people smarter than me have said things like this. Democracy is a mess. What's the only thing worse than democracy? All other political systems yeah. that have been tried, right? All of the other ones. Democracy <laughs> is a mess, but it's almost in the messiness that it's good because it sort of protects us from these sort of wilder movements that we are starting to see all over the world, yeah. which is a, a frightening thing. Like the division that seems to exist within our political system right now. It, it, it's almost like I can remember a time when somebody would vote for a different party than you and you could still go out and have a beer. Right. Whereas now, it's like you can't even you can't even imagine talking to that person. Well, you probably don't even know them. Yeah. Right? It's it's gotten so siloed that we don't know the other people. Yeah. We don't consume the same media they do. We don't have the same friends. We don't live in the same neighborhood. We are really othered. And that's the problem, right? Because as soon as you're in that situation when there's a group of people that you're aware of but you don't know them, it becomes so easy to just stereotype, to demonize, to dehumanize, because we're good at that kind of thing, <laughs> tragically. Like, it's tempting to think, oh, this has got to be the worst it's ever been. Yeah. We need to understand what's happening now. And I'm sure the listeners are also hoping to try to understand this situation that we're in. The last time we talked about politics, I went all the way back to 1933. Right. To talk about Smedley Butler and the business plot. And that, that's pretty far removed from us. For those who haven't been following us since day one, just a quick pricey of what happened. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, there were a group of wealthy businessmen who were unhappy about some of FDR's policies. And they were like, you know what? They got these new forms of government in Europe. They've got this guy in Germany. They've got this guy in Spain. They've got this guy in Italy, these, these fascist dictators. Those guys seem really good for business. Mm. So these wealthy businessmen, these wealthy American businessmen, tried to overthrow the elected American government and install a dictatorship. Oh, dear. Yeah. They got in no amount of trouble for some reason. 
Okay. I can't imagine why not. Uh, and of course, that's the story of Smedley Butler. Right. Fascinating story, fascinating individual. That was 1933. Yeah. So you've got another political story. That's right. And you think that this story will also sort of help us understand our current situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good point, Nathan, that it really helps clarify the present in a way that looking at the present doesn't, weirdly. So when we go on to other platforms, radio, TV, and they ask us about what's happening in the news cycle, I find it really useful to find analogs in history and say, well, this is a lot like that. And we know how that played out. And that can give us a clue, maybe, as to what's happening now. I've got a, a story of a political conspiracy, and it takes us all the way back to before the beginning of America. Now, it's funny, Nathan, when you were introducing today's show by saying, you know, this is the worst that the political divisions have been. Or it feels that way. It certainly feels that way. This is going to be a story where things were really at least as bad, if not significantly worse. And one of the themes, I guess, that I find so fascinating is imagine this story happening today. It would just be so incredible. The kinds of things I'm going to talk about would be the equivalent of like the army, the American army, arresting the mayor of New York in the dead of night. Could you imagine something like that going down today? I, I sort of can these days. Yeah, okay. Maybe not the best example, but it gives you a sense of things have been problematic throughout history, and the sense that we have that conspiracies are on the rise, and maybe in a short-term view historically that is the case, the, the conspiracies are more mainstream today than they have been, say, 20 years ago, perhaps, but... The fact of especially political conspiracies being real and impacting how politics and how history develops is something that has been part of history, really, I would say, from the beginning, certainly American history from the beginning. And there's another aspect, too, and that is how fragile things are. Yeah. Like, things are unbelievably fragile. There is a Polish philosopher, last name Milos, he wrote The Captive Mind. Okay. And in The Captive Mind, he talks about how we walk through the streets and we see the buildings and we see the society that we've built and we think it's all carved in stone as if it will, it will be there forever and has always been that way. Yeah. And how quickly it can all turn, how quickly those buildings can become rubble, right. how quickly things can just basically get washed away. Right. And that is true of our delicate political systems as well. It doesn't take that much for things to get shaken up yeah. in a pretty extraordinary way. Yeah. Well, that is a real preamble to the story we're going to tell. In 1776, a plot was discovered to kill George Washington. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, spoiler alert, <laughs> it did not work, dun, which, dun, dun. which you would know, right? Because, of course, America goes ahead and fights the Revolutionary War against England. They then fully emancipate themselves from British control and become their own country. I should say right from the get-go, this is not a podcast about the American Revolution. It's not about that. Uh, political revolutions are super interesting, but also super complicated to really get into it. These are themes that I've taught in courses. I actually had a course on political revolutions. And 
it's really fascinating stuff. But we're not going to talk about that, really. We're going to talk about this one particular conspiracy that was uncovered. So this episode is about the American Revolution in a similar way that our ep episode on Rasputin was about the Russian Revolution. That's right. It, it's sort of, it's the context in which it happens. It's something that you need to understand to, to figure out, like, what the conspiracy is actually about. But that's not the main thrust of what you're talking about. Exactly. But since you said context, I'll start with the setting, right? So this, this story takes place specifically in the spring and summer of 1776. When I edit this, should I put in some, like, fife music in the background here? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, where are we in American history at this point? Officially, uh, um, America is under the control of the British king. It is a colony, one of many British colonies in the British Empire. That While that is officially true, a lot of separation has already happened. The, the colonies are, to some greater or lesser extent, already self-governing. But officially, and according to law, it's still a British colony. And Particularly taxation law. Well, yes, indeed, particularly, because that is, of course, for those uh, historians out there will know, this is the trigger that finally rips off the Band-Aid. It gets the... The trigger that rips off the Band-Aid? Yeah, no, that's a terrible metaphor. Okay, it's the... Well, it's I the get to edit that this. It's the rides the bicycle. Yeah. It's the... <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Um, it's the pie that knocks the cat off the hot tin roof. Taxation law is what gets the revolutionaries really mad and gets them to finally fight the final battles to emancipate themselves from British rule. How's that for a sentence? All right, I'll accept that one. Okay. In the 1770s, there is a specter haunting America. All right? And this specter is revolution. The British are not going to let America go without a fight. And by the time this story gets going... George Washington has assumed control of the Continental Army. So, if this was Star Wars, he would be Admiral Akbar. I guess so. We're going to get emails. I could be wrong about that. Right. I don't know. Um, I think that's right. I know there's the evil empire with Darth Vader. That's, right, the, that's British, the British. Right. And then we have, yeah, the, the rebels. Yeah. These are the revolutionaries. I'm going to stand by that. George Washington is Admiral Akbar. Fine. And, um... He's taking control of the Continental Army. These are the revolutionaries, the, the Revolutionary Army. And there have been some skirmishes with the British that the Americans, surprisingly, have won. And I say surprisingly because what we are dealing with here, again, history nerds will know all about this, but sometimes it's hard to remember this in, in the context of present-day America. England at this time was the global superpower. It's the, it has the largest navy, it has the largest empire, it is the wealthiest empire on earth. The um, sun never sets on it. Exactly. And the Continental Army has won skirmishes with the British soldiers that are in America just sort of like milling about, enforcing things like taxation law and keeping the peace. But that's not really an army. No, I mean... Like, compared to the British Army, the American forces are, let's face it, a bit ragtag. Yeah. So, now that there is a Continental Army, there have been these skirmishes, and England is not happy about it, they are sending their navy. The navy is coming. 
It's like the equivalent of a nuclear weapon back then. This is the most powerful force of violence that exists in the world at this point is the British Navy. That's right. And they're on their way. And they are probably going to show up in the summer of 1776. And they are going to reassert British authority over the American colonies. That's where we're at. But the cast of characters, which I want to introduce now, I mean, it's just brilliant. Like, you know you're sitting on a political thriller when you hear about the cast of characters involved in this particular conspiracy. We have an armed revolutionary leader, you know him better as George Washington. Uh, he is now commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Another character in this story is going to be a gunsmith by the name of Gilbert Forbes. There are four counterfeiters who are trying to fake money, basically. That's going to be their thing. They're going to counterfeit money. We have the British governor of New York, a man named William Tryon. And we have a group that some historians have suggested is maybe the earliest template for America's Secret Service, and they're called the lifeguards. These are not swimming lifeguards. These are a group of select soldiers who are to keep George Washington safe. One in particular, although we will meet a couple of others, is Thomas Hickey. So we have this setting. The revolution is in the air. The British are coming. George Washington has taken control of the Continental Army. And we've got a bunch of meh, ne'er-do-wells and, uh, you know, hucksters and uh, tricksters. And there's a certain logic to this conspiracy. George Washington is a really popular leader. And as you said, <laughs> the Continental Army is really only an army in name. It is a ragtag bunch of people. They don't have a, a, a coherent uniform. People are showing up in, you know, like tattered pants and, and shirts. Their uh, weapons might be like farm implements. There's some who are too old and some who are too young. There are people who are clearly, you know, beggars and uh, just let out of prison. This is what the Continental Army looks like. But they do have home field advantage. They do have home field advantage. This, though, introduces a really interesting complexity in the history of revolution. It's, you know, we're in the future. And again, this is going back to your intro. This is what we like about the future is we know what happened in the past or we think we know what happened yeah, in the past. Yeah, we got an idea. We have, a, we have a better idea often than mm -hmm. the people themselves at the time. And we know that America wins this war. But if you're living in uh, the British colonies in the United States at, well, they're not the United States, they're the British colonies at this time, you don't know that America is going to win and win its independence. And the question of which side you choose is maybe a question of life or death. And this is going to become important because while they have home field advantage, how they're going to use that and exactly what home means in this context politically, is home part of the British Empire or is it part of this independent nation, is not yet settled. People are switching sides depending on how they think this war is going to unfold. Yeah, and which way the wind is blowing. Right. Well, I'm scared now of using metaphors in this right. podcast for <laughs> being called out on it. 
<laughs> I was going to ask you a question before I got sidetracked with my own with my own talking. What I'm trying to do is get Nathan to imagine a strategy of the British king or whoever is making the military strategy from the side of the British. So you have colonies and there's some upstart rebel ruler over there who is quite charismatic and who seems to be a good organizer and is causing trouble. He is now the head of an army. What might be a strategy you could imagine employing to getting rid of this trouble? Well, if I am in the position of the British, what are my advantages? My advantages are I have far greater access to resources, far greater access to wealth. So I feel like I would do some flexing. Okay. I would do a show force. I'd show up with all of these ships, put them offshore, just sort of remind people, hey, who's the empire over here? Right. And I would assume there's going to be people on the ground who are less than enthusiastic about breaking away from England and becoming their own country. So I'd gonna, I, I would want to support them probably financially. Yeah. And to try to funnel some money into them. And also, that's another way of flexing, right? Just throw some money around and be like, hey, right. you know, we're the empire. We're Darth Vader over here. Right. And, of course, our audience doesn't know that this question I just asked Nathan was a genuine question in the sense that we had not before taping set it up so that he was going to give me the right answer. We never are organized enough to set up <laughs> anything. We t it's, it's like a live show here, right? We tape it and we put it out there. But this is what I mean about sort of the logic of conspiracies and the logic of politics. You would be silly not to do this. Yeah. You would be silly not to try and turn soldiers to your side. You would be silly not to throw some money around. And of course, this is exactly what England does. This is the name of the game. This is going to be a large part of their strategy is they're going to undermine that army right from the get-go. Now, another thing that they think to themselves is maybe we can just get rid of the leader. Now, the danger with that kind of a strategy is you can turn somebody into a martyr yep. and make the make the cause even stronger in their death. Yeah, everybody rallies around that name. Remember this guy. Right. But on the other hand, it's also possible that the whole thing disintegrates. Well, especially if the leader that you're bumping off is actually like a tactical commander. Exactly. He's got some skills. Bumping them off is also a tactical move. It isn't just a symbolic move. Now, George Washington does not have as much tactical skill as, say, the British might have, who are actively engaged in uh, colonial skirmishes all over the place. They've seen action in war, the Seven Years' War, and other things. Yeah, if there's anything Europe has been up to, <laughs> it's war. <laughs> it continues to be up to uh, from, from 1776 on. Exactly. So, But George Washington certainly does show a lot of promise. Those skirmishes that I briefly referenced he won, even those he was outnumbered and the odds were against them. And, you know, he heroically defeats the British. Maybe to get rid of that leader, to bump him off, is not such an outlandish idea. I mean, if this can just settle the problem right here and now, pay a couple of people off and get rid of the leader. Yeah, that seems like a useful strategy because war is an expensive, messy business. And if there are other strategies that you can employ, then why not do it? And of course, we have seen that over and over again used as a political strategy after 1776. 
One thing about using money to turn people in the army. This is a really important question in the history of revolutions. The moment a revolution is won or lost is when the army decides which side they're on. For whatever high-minded goals or whatever you know ideas that might animate people to participate in the revolution, it really, really matters what side the army chooses to back. An obvious one here is in the Russian Revolution, when the army decides at some point that they're actually going to back the Russian revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, that's essentially the time that the Russian imperial might is over. It's not when the Tsar and his family is executed. It is at the point at which the Russian army decides that they're going to go with the revolutionaries. And why did they just, in the Russian sense, it tells us again about what's happening in 1776, the reason they did this is because they were horrendously under-equipped for yeah. World War I. Like, no boots and guns kind of under-equipped. Their leader was hapless. It was in that, at that point Tsar Nicholas II. Not a great commander. Back to 1776 in the United States, the army is uh, not doing great. The Continental Army, the Revolutionary Army, is poor. They're underfed. Their wages have been deferred sometimes for months. The sanitary conditions are horrendous. They're pooping in the street. I don't want to get it too into it, but it's gross out there. The imperial superpower is sending their entire force is coming. They're just, they're on their way. We know they're on their way. You've signed up to the army. Who knows why? Maybe you needed some cash. Maybe you were bored. But you're not getting paid. The rations are terrible. You're not necessarily even eating well. The sanitary conditions are horrendous. It doesn't take much now for somebody to say, hey, buddy. (laughs) I got a loaf of bread. Why don't you switch sides? Right? I mean, it's just obvious. It's just obvious. Of course, if you're on the wrong side when the dust settles when the uh, Revolutionary War is fought and let's imagine England wins, well, now you're a traitor and you're going to die. So you're looking around as an ordinary soldier in the Continental Army and some of them are thinking, uh, this is not going very well. You know, this is this, I'm not sure that we're in fact going to win and I haven't been paid and I'm not getting fed well. This is not, this is not working out for me. So there are going to be elements within the army who are going to be very easy to turn. I'll start the conspiracy with four counterfeiters. And here's maybe a non-conventional strategy of war that when I asked you the question, what would you do as the British? This is not something everybody would spontaneously think of. But It is something that is a non-conventional strategy of war that the British employed against America at this time. And that was counterfeiting. The British would counterfeit a whole bunch of American paper money and flood markets with this money. What happens if you flood a market with counterfeit bills? Well, here's the thing about money. It doesn't really have any value. It only has the value that, that we believe it has. And so right now, I can give somebody a $10 bill and get a chicken shawarma because the person believes that those two things are, you know, reasonably coherent. You could say, oh, but if you have the gold standard, isn't it, 
isn't it based on how much gold you have? Yeah, but then the, the worth of gold is also entirely based on belief. And one of the ways you can shake up the belief is if you just flood an economy with bills, like you can just print them off like they're nothing, then people aren't going to believe they're worth anything. If that belief isn't there, then what you suffer is something called hyperinflation. Dun, dun, dun. And of course, we've seen hyperinflation happen in Brazil. Of course, famously, it happened in Germany in the 1930s. It is not something that you want to go through. It means that like you've saved up enough money to put a down payment on a house. The following year, that same amount of money gets you a candy bar. Right. Like yeah, it, it is, it's it is devastating. a terrifying thing to go through. Yeah. It ruins a country. Exactly. It ruins a country by ruining its economy, by ruining the value of money. And so the British decided, well, this is a great strategy to employ against these rebels who are causing trouble. Well, you know, one way to deal with them is to ruin the economy. And of course, if you don't have an economy, it's really hard to fund an army. I mean, how are you going to pay your gunsmiths? How are you going to pay the farmer for their supplies? All of that kind of stuff. Well, the reason I start here is because up until the revolutionary rumblings, counterfeiting was actually a pretty lucrative racket to get into. It was relatively easy to counterfeit American bills at that time. They didn't come with all the uh, standard safety measures that, you know, your money will today. They didn't have holograms back then. Right? In fact, yesterday, I was at a record shop and I tried to pay with some cash money and he would not accept it because he thought that the $5 bill I was giving him did not have the sufficient amount of uh, holograms and things like that that they were supposed to. Are you trying to pass bad bills in Kensington Market again? Yeah, well, I didn't know. But anyway, he was... That's his he, official position. <laughs> so there are four guys who decide that they're going to get into the counterfeiting racket. And I'll give you the names. Israel Young and Isaac Young. So these are two brothers. Their friend and neighbor, Henry Dawkins, and another neighbor named Isaac Ketchum. Now, I'm going to give you a bunch of names. This will all come together when later they're all sitting together in a New York jail cell. and Because that's where this conspiracy is uncovered. These guys are like, we're going to make some money. Like literally, literally, like we're going to make our own money. And what they're going to do is they're going to counterfeit bills. And apparently the trick here is not to make them look too good because the official bills, they oh, weren't they're great. They're pretty shabby already. Right? And so they weren't great. And so what they do is they have the engraving tools and they have their their plates and the printing press, and they installed this in the attic of the Young's brother's house. And up there, they go through the process of trying to mint bills. It's a curious thing in the history of, of, of sort of how crimes get discovered. It's, it's often this way. Neighbors start getting suspicious, right? There's this one guy, Henry Dawkins, who never seems to leave the house, ever. Like, he's just hold up there the whole time. They've also got delivery of like these really weird things, say a printing press. And because, as I said, revolution is in the air and people have been told to watch out for counterfeiters as a kind of a patriotic act, they alert the authorities. The authorities get involved, they send, and everything at this point is done through militias. I don't know, what is the official term for a group of militia members? Like a gaggle? Uh, or or right. a pod. An unkindness. <laughs> anyway, 
They send a group of militia people over. Squad. They send a squad of militia people over who, you know, long, long short of it, they, they find the whole thing. They arrest the four of them. And after some preliminary questioning, off to the jail cell in New York. Now, just a little tidbit of information before we break off this narrative. The jail cell is directly underneath the city hall, where the Congress is meeting. So the Congress meets in city hall above, you know, on street level. Underneath in the basement is the jail cell. And that's where these four counterfeiters are thrown in. Three out of the four, full-on legit guilty. But one of the four, his name is Isaac Ketchum. He knew what he was getting into on the one hand, but he was also very peripheral. The thing that they needed, they had everything except for one thing. They needed a special kind of paper. So this was one of the few anti-counterfeiting measures that were part of these bills back in the day. They were made on a very special paper that could only be gotten in one particular place. The three counterfeiters, they bring in Isaac Ketchum, this fourth guy, to go see if he can't find this paper. And they're going to, you know, they're going to reward him a bit. But he's more, of the four, he's more peripheral. Another thing about Isaac Ketchum, his wife died and he's got six kids at home. You know, it's the kind of thing that it's, it's probably tough to get work. Uh, you got six mouths to feed at home. You're doing it by yourself. And so he thinks, well, okay. I'll make a little bit of money on this side hustle. I'll try and get these guys their paper. They'll give me a little bit of cash. Bang, bang. When he's arrested, you know, this is a total disaster. It's a disaster for the four of them, but especially for this guy who wasn't really even part of the whole process. He, he tries to come clean, but nobody believes him. I mean, obviously, what do you say, right? When you're in shackles in the basement of some 1776 prison in the United States, you're like, of course I'm innocent, please let me go. He tries to appeal to the better nature of the Congress by saying, look, I'm very sorry, but I've got these kids at home. Okay, but nobody listens to him, so whatever. So there he is, rotting in the basement of the cell. Okay, we pause the narrative here for a moment, and we go over to a guy named Gilbert Forbes. He's a gunsmith. He runs a gun shop on Broadway Street in New York. At one of the local bars, a guy, he falls into conversation with a guy who basically says, listen, I know a way that you could make an absolute killing with your guns. And, you know... No pun intended. Ah, I keep doing that on this show. And so, you know, Gilbert Forbes is interested. He's like, tell me more. Well, guns at this point, we are now fully in 1776 in the spring. Guns are a hot commodity because, you know... Again, the British are coming and we've got a continental army and we, we're gonna we're getting ready to fight. So guns are a rare thing. Mm-hmm. But who wants the guns? The Continental Army wants the guns. But the British also want guns. Like the British soldiers who are stationed in America want guns. So this Sergeant Graham, we're not sure if this is his actual name or if this is like a code name. This is the guy Gilbert Forbes is talking to. He's like, listen. Uh, William Tryon, the governor of New York, who is currently holed up on a boat in New York Harbor because he's fearing for his life because of, you know, the revolutionary fervor that's going around. Because he's um, pro-British. He's, he's with the empire. He is the uh, official stand-in for the crown. He is the top leader in New York. He is the governor of New York. And so he is 
um, representing the king there. And the Sergeant Graham says, listen, if you sell us, that is the British guns, we're going to pay a really good price for it. And Gilbert Forbes, who is essentially a businessman, is like, yeah, okay, sure. Now, again, I'm not trying to justify his position either. But today, it's really easy to paint a good and bad side or to to pigeonhole these people as good or bad, depending on what side they're on. You got patriots, you got traitors. Right? But actually, if you're on the side of the British, you're legally in the right. Because it's the British who... This is a British colony. So this is the complexity of revolutionary history is that until the revolutionaries win, the other side is actually the right one to be on legally and maybe even morally. They probably swore an oath at some point in their life to the king. Patriotism and treachery are sort of relative. (laughs) You said it, not me. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Gilbert Forbes is like, yeah, sure, I'll sell guns to the British, even though this is at this point from the Continental Army's standpoint and from George Washington's standpoint, not allowed. So, sells the guns, and through this also, it turns out that Gilbert Forbes is willing to do more. He's making a good amount of money on the guns, but he is also actually willing to see if some soldiers might not want to, you know, leave the army or even spy, stay in the Continental Army and spy for the British or somehow turn these soldiers. So we've got Gilbert Forbes now not only making guns for the British, but he's also part of what turns into a growing plot that is going to be steered and organized from the ship where William Tryon, the governor of New York, is stationed. The governor gives money to New York mayor, again, representative of the British crown, David Matthews. David Matthews gives this money to Gilbert Forbes, the gunsmith, to pay for the guns, but also to turn people to the other side. And what it turns out is also being organized is not just the turning of soldiers, but the turning of these soldiers for a very particular reason. There is a plot afoot organized by the British governor to blow up the magazines, the magazine stores, so the like the ammunition and gun stores of the Continental Army. That's one part. They're going to blow up a bridge, which would be necessary to supply the George Washington's army, and they're going to kill George Washington. Dun-dun-dun again. <laughs> now, Gilbert Forbes basically is then the operative on the ground, right? So he is, in spy terms, he's the spy. And David Matthews is the handler. And then William Tryon, the governor, he's like the spy master. He's the, he's the guy back, you know, um, behind the scenes, really running the show. The money comes from William Tryon. It goes to Mayor David Matthews, from whom it then goes to Gilbert Forbes, and Gilbert Forbes uses that money to pay soldiers. So here's the deal as a continental soldier. Here's the deal that was made to you. If you are willing to switch allegiances from George Washington's Revolutionary Army back to the side of the British, 
where you should have always been, according to the British, right? What you will get is a ton of land. I think it's, and I, I might be wrong on this one thing where I don't have it in my notes right now. I think it's 150 acres of land for you, plus 100 or 50 acres for your wife, and then 50 acres for each of your children. Okay, so this is like a ton of land, essentially for free, and we're talking to people who have not been paid for months, yeah, right? Be pretty who are, tempting. Who are taking poops in the street because there there are no sanitary condi- uh, facilities for them to to make use of. And here, so, like based on what you've said, I feel like you as the soldier, the thing that's convincing you is the street pooping. <laughs> yes, you're like yes. Give me bidets or give me death. Exactly, and give me my my 150 acres right. for very little. So that's the promise of of the future. But right now, you actually get money pressed into your hand. Mm-hmm. Like, here it is. Here's the cash. And it works, you know. He becomes Gilbert Forbes, the gunsmith, who is the operative on the ground doing this, becomes known in loyalist circles. So loyalists are the ones who are the... The count- English. The English, or the ones who the side with the English, mm-hmm. the counter-revolutionaries. He becomes known. There are certain bars for the revolutionaries, and there are certain bars for the loyalists, and he is a figure in the loyalist uh, drinking scene. And of course, you know, soldiers who are fresh into New York, they don't necessarily know what bar to go to. And, you know, they might be there, and he, they might start talking to this guy, and before you know it, they've got... And he Some, says to them, hey, you pooped in the street today? And right. Like, yeah. And like, come with me, son. Exactly. Exactly. We rejoin the counterfeiters in the jail. It's, they've been there for quite a while. And, they, you know, things have, things have gotten worse for them. Like, they are now actually in uh, leg irons. Their legs are swelling. They don't get to move around. You know, things are horrendous. I mean, things are horrendous in jail anyway. And now you're like 300 years ago. And it's even more horrendous. And any um, kind of cut you get on your body could result in some kind of infection that kills you. Yeah, like exactly. Exactly. The survival rate in those jails was not tremendous. No, and they are packed. Yeah. These jails are packed, much like in the, in the Salem days. You know, people are finding themselves on the wrong side of patriotism all the time. And so they are being sent to, the, uh, to these jails. Well... It just so happens that Saturday, June 15th, 1776, so we're now right in the heart of the conspiracy kind of coming to light and unraveling. I said it happened in the spring and summer. It's now June. This is when it really goes down. And um, two new jail or two new inmates in the jail cell arrive. Prisoners, you might say. Yes. So here they are, and they are uh, soldiers of the Continental Army. Not just soldiers, but a particular branch. They are lifeguards. These are hand-picked soldiers who are guarding the life of George Washington. They're not happy about things. Uh, They're not happy about the state of the army. That is the Continental, the Revolutionary Army. They're not happy about their prospects of winning. They don't really think they're going to win. And they're worried about what it'll mean to be on the losing side. And the British are coming. I mean, they're ever closer now. And they start talking quite loudly about some kind of a plot. There's a plot afoot. Now, this is the one that Gilbert Forbes had been organizing, not just turning the soldiers, but it's blowing up their weapons stores, blowing up a bridge, and 
killing George Washington. Well, Isaac Ketchum, that fourth counterfeiter who wasn't really part of the outfit. and the paper who's man. Got the, yeah, the paper man who's got six kids at home currently without any supervision. How are they being fed? He does not know. How are they faring? He does not know. He is worried. He is angry. He is in a world of hurt. But he sees an opportunity here. And he starts to make like he is also a disaffected soldier who is willing to, or at least a sympathizer, a loyalist Tory sympathizer, a counter-revolutionary. And he's like, yeah, the king is great. And George Washington's an idiot and totally like makes like he's part of, he's on their side. So they take him into their confidence and they start telling him about this plot. Well, he uses this as an opportunity. Again, he's in the basement. The Congress is meeting just upstairs, or at least the New York Congress is meeting upstairs. And uh, he writes them a letter. I have something to observe to the Honorable House, if I could be admitted. It is nothing concerning my own affair, but entirely on another subject. From yours to serve, Isaac Ketchum. So Congress upstairs hears this, and they're like, okay, you know, whatever. So they bring him up. And he starts talking about this plot that he's heard of. Now, you'd think, well, anybody currently in leg irons downstairs rotting away in this horrendous prison with six starving children at home is going to say whatever. But a bunch of the story checks out. Yeah, he's Um, got some specifics. He's got some specifics, stuff that he shouldn't know, in a sense. I can only imagine his disappointment (laughs) when they tell him, okay... Yeah, very nice. What we want you to do is go back into prison uh. and learn more. But he does. So he goes back down. And basically what comes out is this plot to kill George Washington, blow up the bridge, blow up the things. And, and the idea here is that this is going to be timed for the arrival of the British fleet. So it's going to cause this like massive, there'll be a massive morale upset. It's you know? a shock and awe move. Exactly. The British are going to show up, stuff's going to explode, and the British are going to be like, we are here, we have shown up on the scene, we have come in hot, right? reminding everybody what an empire looks like. Just kind of the way you said you would do it right at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. right? There's a power move par excellence. And not only this, but half the army that you thought was on your side, haha, they're actually with the British, right? Now, specifically to the potential assassination of George Washington, it turns out that at least five of the lifeguards are in on it. Now, two are in prison, but that means that there are three out there at the moment guarding George Washington, and his life is imminently in danger. Now, this isn't that unusual a thing to have leaders put in danger by their own guards. Like, there are a bunch of times this has happened in history. And yet... That's how Indira Gandhi died. Put this in today's American context. Like, three members of a CIA detail, you know, responsible for the president's life, have been turned by a a foreign power and are now actively waiting for the, like, the sign to off them. I mean, can you imagine? And, you know, to reflect back on how we started the episode with, you know... Things seem bad now, but (laughs) things have also been bad in the past. Things are always bad. I mean, that's really what we're trying to say with all of our episodes. Things are always bad. So 
five lifeguards are in on this plot. William Green, Thomas Hickey, who I mentioned at the outset, Michael Lynch, a guy named Johnson, and a private named Barnes. So that's what we know. There are five. Now, it could be as many as eight, but these are sort of five conspirators. They are then arrested. In questioning of each new soldier who was arrested, it's like, well, how did this get going? And eventually, you know, they had a chat with Gilbert Forbes, who started asking if they were recently pooping in the streets and, and hadn't been paid. And so Gilbert Forbes is eventually arrested. Now, he doesn't want to talk. He stays mum for 15 long hours until, kind of sinister move here, they bring in a priest to give him his last rites. Oh, that is suggestive. And the priest, though, hangs a lifeline out for him and says, you know, if you talk, this might all end differently for you. And lo and behold, <laughs> he starts talking. Okay. From Gilbert Forbes, then, we discover that Mayor David Matthews is handing out the money. He's getting it from William Tryon. And the, the whole thing starts getting unraveled here. The whole thing starts getting unraveled. There are others in on it, potentially, and rather embarrassingly for George Washington, his housekeeper, Mary Smith. Oof, May that's close to home. Really close to home. Now, she is not arrested, and this might be just one of these instances where it was a little too close for comfort. Another part of the story that we haven't really emphasized is the public relations campaign that is happening, which is you don't want people to know that your soldiers have been turned. Right, because it right. encourages soldiers to be like, oh, I could turn. Right. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. And, and also civilians to be like, oh, we're totally going to lose this war. Yeah. Why are our soldiers turning? It's the eve of the revolutionary, you know, the real battles are about to begin. And lo and behold, you know, the Secret Service detail or whatever is all on the other side. So yeah. it's a bad look. There's a committee struck. Huh? It's called the Committee on conspiracies. Now, this that is that could the, have been the name of our show, right? In fact, it even had a worse name than that. For a while, it was called the Committee on Intestine Enemies. What? No, I know, I know. This is an old-fashioned. This isn't use more of the, pooping in the street, is right? It? Well, that's an interesting connection. How uh, did you not make that immediately? <laughs> I was immersed in very serious political research here. So, intestine enemies. The Committee on Conspiracies again. Conspiracies are there at the very beginning yeah. of American history. Like before America exists, we have a committee on conspiracies. And it is to uncover these political conspiracies. It is, in a sense, the first attempt at counterintelligence. Mm -hmm. It's to figure out what is the enemy doing? How are they messing with us? And how can we stop those plots before they actually get going? How can we mess with the messers? Right. Or at least protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the Committee on Conspiracies is struck. They're the ones who investigate this. They then go, go through the arrests and they make a decision at one point that what really needs to happen is there needs to be a kind of a public face for this conspiracy. Because, again, this is also a public relations battle. And what you want to do is... You've got to give the public a villain. Exactly. So they choose one of the lifeguards against whom they have a pretty airtight case. Thomas Hickey is a pretty decent villain in the sense that he had switched allegiances from the British 
army. He was an Irishman who, who was fighting on behalf of the British, switched allegiance over to uh, the revolutionaries, and then switched back again. So he's this sort of like waffler. Right, he's a bit sketchy, he's a bit shady. And uh, he's that's a, Irish. That's a good villain, yeah. And of course, there was and tons of anti-Irish sentiment There was the a lot of anti-Irish racism yeah. back in the day. And also, the important thing is, he wasn't like some kid from New Hampshire. You know, he wasn't like somebody that would be... You could paint him as an outsider. Exactly. They also have a pretty airtight case against him. They know that he's in on the plot. He is one of the lifeguards. He was personally chosen by George Washington. Oh, stab in the back. He was liked by George Washington in part because he had legit military experience. Having fought for the British in various campaigns, this is one of the few people who wasn't like one of the ragtag members of this Continental Army with tattered shirts and no weapons. This is a guy who knew how to load and fire a musket, who knew about formations and all this kind of stuff. And if this was a movie, this was a guy you could be like, I trusted you. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. And the music swells. Exactly. So they've got this case against him. Guilty as charged for treason. So he's the first person. Treason is serious. Yeah, and he, exactly. He is the first person also to be tried and sentenced for treason in this period, like at the beginning, at the dawn of America, because before treason meant against against the the British. British king, right? And we've had this phrase before. His sentence from the Salem episode, his sentence was to be hanged by the neck until dead. Like in Salem, this once this once the sentence is read out loud, the, the process goes really quickly. George Washington meets the next day. It is decided that this is going to be a public execution. This is not going to be sort of a quiet affair because the rumors, as much as they've been try, trying to keep this under wraps, the rumors have been spreading that there was this big sinister plot to potentially assassinate George Washington and do all these other things right at the moment that the British were to arrive. And so as a kind of counter public relations measure, like we're going to make this a public execution. And at the time of his execution, which happens on Friday, June 28th at 11 a.m. in 1776, the army's got to go. He wants them to see what happens to traitors. And but uh, imagine being hanged by the neck until dead as a bit of a PR exercise. Right? That'd I mean, make look, it even worse. He was guilty yeah. and he was part of this plot. And if you're going to be a soldier in a revolutionary war, you are taking chances. He was guilty from the. Ah, quite, right? He was guilty from one perspective, from yeah. the perspective of those who won. And at the end of the day, that's what matters politically. Right. He was both a patriot and a traitor. Yeah. The Patriot got paid. Right. The the traitor got hanged. Yeah. But it was the same man. Yeah, exactly. 20,000 people show up to this public event. Well, people showed up to those things. Yeah. There wasn't a no, whole lot else going on. But he, they, uh, many of them were also uh, basically commanded to be there. Like if you were a member of the army, you needed to you show gotta up. You got to watch this. Yeah. So to, just so you know what's coming. And like a that, faculty meeting. <laughs> Again, you said it, not me. And that was the plot to kill George Washington. Now, there's a little postscript, a couple of things, just just sort of some extra information here. At almost the exact moment that Thomas Hickey is executed for treason, not too far away, 
the first draft of the Declaration of Independence is being read and edited by what soon become the founders of America. The British arrive soon after the plot is discovered. The Revolutionary War is fought, and, you know, of course, we know how this ends, right? America wins and becomes an independent country. What are the lessons of this, of this event? Well, I think... Asking you about what would you do if you were the British and then you came up with a good part of this plan suggests that this is just how politics and war is done. I mean, it just wouldn't make sense to expend the lives of all these soldiers if there was a quicker fix to the problem. We've seen it when we looked at Soviet disinformation. And how disinformation is just a lot cheaper than chaining spies. If you can convince your political enemy of something that is not true, that's great because it's cheap and it's effective. If you can use spies instead of using large armies, armies that's way cheaper and way more effective. So I think, again, this is a, a lesson for me, at least in our journey through the world of conspiracies is having been trained in politics and political history and philosophy as my formal training and my background, I always thought conspiracies were a marginal thing, a marginal event, something that sure happens, but it's not really where the action is. It's a kind of peripheral thing that happens over somewhere else. But no, this is how it's done. So that's one lesson that I would take away is that we're seeing versions of this today. Versions of this in any lead-up to a war, in any actually existing war, in the recent wars that we've seen, there are going to be elements of this where you try and turn soldiers, where you pay people off, where you try and perpetrate a conspiracy for your political advantage and disadvantage of your political enemies. It now, has been suggested, and there is some evidence for this, but again, it's still too new for us to know for sure, that Russia, when they invaded Ukraine, Putin was expecting that there was going to be something like this happening in Ukraine, that, that soldiers would have been paid off, that they, would have, that they would have changed sides, because he had been told that by his intelligence chiefs. Yeah. That the intelligence chiefs were like, oh, yeah, you've given us all this money, and we've been paying off all these Ukrainian soldiers to change sides. Yeah. It's entirely possible that those intelligence chiefs just pocketed the money. Yeah. Which is why that early stage of the invasion was seemingly done so poorly. They were, like, paratrooping into like airports with no support because they were assuming that they were going to be greeted right. by those paid off soldiers, which never materialized. Yeah. Well, and like you, I don't really know because this is too close. I do know that those intelligence chiefs have been sent to some very serious prisons. Right. Okay. We do know that. So, so this is the kind of thing that will uh, appear on the uncover up and say five, five or years 10 from years. Now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When we have a lot more data to go on, but it just makes sense. It just makes sense to employ conspiracies as part of an arsenal of attack. Now, that's my lesson or one of the lessons that I've taken out of not just this conspiracy, but many that we've looked at in the political world. How about you? What would be a lesson that Nathan Radke learned from Lee's investigation of the attempted assassination of George Washington? Oh, there's a bunch. I'd say I agree that one of the main lessons is, yeah, conspiracies are part of the political world. Mm. I would also say that a lesson from this is that conspiracies are hard to pull off. Yeah, that's true. 
because the secrecy necessary in pulling off a conspiracy, it, it runs counter to the fact that you need a bunch of people in on it. This right. is something we've talked about a bunch of times before. The more people in on a conspiracy, the less likely it is that it can stay quiet. But sometimes you need a bunch of people in on a conspiracy in order to pull the conspiracy off. So it's yeah. this really tricky balancing act. And a lot of conspiracies get undone because some guy is sitting somewhere and he runs his mouth off. Right. The counterfeiters, I didn't mention that. Not only were the neighbors suspicious because there was like some suspicious activity in the house, but the two brothers kept bragging about how they were going to get all this there cash it is. soon, right? There, it, there and we And you're go. like, <laughs> you don't talk about this. And that's another lesson is that on the one hand, we've got these sort of like high ideals and we're, we're, we're fighting wars for, for ideology and for like these, these grand, these grand things, but also because somebody offers us food or money or a toilet. Yeah. 